90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, doing pretty well. How about yourself? Oh, not doing too bad, you know, trying to uh, further internet connect to my house. So that's always Oh fun. my gosh. You are, <laughs> man, when the machines take over, you are the first one going down. <laughs> <laughs> the, the latest thing is I can now ask my Amazon device how much fuel is in my car and it will answer. Oh my gosh. You just had car <laughs> problems too. Did you know this is not okay? <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. All right. Well, you need to leave like a some kind of thing on a piece of paper saying like where you'll be when they try to kill you. So I'll know where to find you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you just mail it to me. It's this big place. They've got stamps. And they'll also really have my weird. master password on it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, well, yeah, I haven't done anything exciting like that. I'm just trying to survive April like everyone else in academia. So, you know, <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, you know, I'm actually really excited to talk to the guests that we're going to have on the show today, because when the machines rise, they will be able to make beautiful maps of their progress. <laughs> so, <laughs> we're really excited be, to be talking to Paul Wessel and Leo Uyida. Hey, guys. Hey, how are you doing? Hey. So, guys, could you tell us a little bit about how you got into geophysics and your background? Well, um, this goes way back to the previous century with me. Uh, I was uh, <laughs> happily taking uh, mathematics and thinking about astronomy, and then I got a, a letter saying that, hey, you should go into uh, oil geophysics. This is the early 80s. So it was the oil boom in the North Sea. And that sounded good, so I switched my major to geophysics. That's how it started. <laughs> uh, that oil money sucks a lot of us in. <laughs> I never ended up in the old, old patch, but <laughs> that was the start. Oh, oh, well, maybe someday. <laughs> well, and so after the undergraduate degree, where'd you go from there? So actually, I, I did a master's also in Oslo, University of Oslo. And then uh, my advisor okay. said, you know, you should go abroad for grad school for a PhD. And I said, what's that? And uh, I'll make some calls. So we had some good connections with uh, Columbia, Lamont Doherty at the time. And uh, before I knew it, I was on my way to New York. This is 85. I started my PhD there with Tony Watts and Bill Haxby. And five years later, <laughs> I got my PhD. <laughs> well, simple as that. <laughs> yes. Well, it was working well, but. Right. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's really nice. Yes. It's just buying time, mostly. <laughs> Seeing how long you can put off submitting that paper. Exactly. Uh, so, Leo, what about uh, you? Yeah, I also got in very randomly. Uh, when I was graduating high school, I had no idea what I wanted to do. So, instead of picking a subject, I decided to exclude everything that I didn't want to do. And there, there wasn't much left. And my sister had just met a geophysicist and said, "Oh yeah, the, this guy says there's a lot of there are a lot of jobs now in Brazil." So I figured I should apply. And never thought I would get in, but turns out I got in. And uh, now, what, 14 years later, I'm still doing it. So <laughs> turned out okay in the end. <laughs> it's a hard habit to kick, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and so one of the questions that we oftentimes ask people are, what are some of the strange career turns that you had? But you're both right now at University of Hawaii, so I think we want to know what your career path was so we can duplicate it. Right, yeah, so in my case, pretty straightforward, actually. So towards the end of my PhD, we all went out to a Chinese restaurant, and they had these fortune cookies. And so mine said, you are headed to a warm and sunny place. And then shortly thereafter, I got an option to apply for a postdoc position in Hawaii. So it was preordained in my case. <laughs> that is great. My fortune cookie the other day said that I was going to look into the eyes of a good friend and see myself or something. So I don't know how that relates. <laughs> it doesn't sound as good as your fortune no, cookie. No, I think mine, I kept mine for years, but uh, no, no longer with us. <laughs> oh. <laughs> And so, Leo, how did you end up in Hawaii? Uh, well, uh, 
my wife was gonna go to Stony Brook for a year, so I, I figured I might start looking for something as well in the US so we could be a bit closer. And I signed up for a bunch of mailing lists and about a month later I got an I saw the ad for for the postdoc here. Uh, and I applied and I think I was probably the only one, so I got in. <laughs> you and know yeah, turns out not near New York, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Turns out we're, it's we're far it's away. <laughs> almost exactly the same distance. <laughs> nice. But, I mean, it's in Hawaii. It's the same it's country Hawaii. now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Don't you have lots of beaches in Brazil? I've been there. It's pretty nice. <laughs> it's pretty nice, but the, the beaches in Rio are, are kind of dirty and crowded. <laughs> gotcha. So... Hawaii it was then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I, I had the, the pleasure of meeting you all, and uh, I've been talking with Leo in the Software Underground chat room for a long time now, but at last year's SciPy, and I will say since then, I've been trying to think of creative ways to get some funding to come out there and visit. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what we wanted to talk to you all about was GMT, or Generic Mapping Tools, which is a set of tools that a lot of folks listening to the show are familiar with, and I would say many use daily. So, Paul, if you could take us to the start of GMT, when did it start? It did start at Lamont as a grad student. And uh, at the time, the software that we had there to process our data was, it was old Fortran code written for punch cards. So the, the data <laughs> format had to be sort of matched punch cards. Like it was like eight columns for each row of data, even though it was a time series. It was very painful and you couldn't make any changes. <laughs> So we just said to help with this, and we started coding our own thing to do, you know, what we needed to do for a global analysis. So it just sort of came out of that. Uh, I, I hate to ask, but everyone that we always talk to, I mean, what's your punch card story where you tripped and fell and they got a lot of order? You have one of those, right? <laughs> no, I don't. I, I have oh. seen a punch card reader. I've seen punch cards, but I never actually used them. So okay. I just missed that window, I think. Okay, gotcha. So you just developed your own software instead. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. He took the easy route. So, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what kind of systems uh, were you running on then? Well, there was kind of like, you know, three or four string abacuses that we had to sort of shuffle binary balls <laughs> back and forth. If I remember right. <laughs> no, it wasn't right. so bad. It was, uh, min what do they call these things? The PDP 7th and 8th and 9th, it's got early Unix boxes, sort of central, okay. central. And then about a year or two afterwards, we started to get Sun workstations. I think it was like 86 or something like that. So our group bought a whole bunch of them. and. Uh, there were Unix, we learned about Unix. We learned Unix was written in C, so I got curious about C. That seemed like an interesting language. The book was very thin, the Carnegie and Ritchie C book, it was super thin. So that appealed to us. And uh, you just sort of started you know, hacking away at uh, how to do things in C, it was, was fun. Yeah, so the, the Kernigan and Ritchie book, it is thin, mm -hmm. but it is dense. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we learned that later. You know, <laughs> at the time it looked yeah. easy. to superficially, oh, and it's like fifteen keywords. That's it. You know, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. So, when I guess, how do you how do you even start the process of I want to be able to process my data? And was making maps in the original scope of this, or was it more of a data processing? Uh, it was that too, it was both actually. And again, to make plots that wasn't exactly the way the old Fortran code wanted them to make was very complicated. Was, you couldn't really change what you want to plot. It was very limited. So it was very frustrating every time you want to do something like a global map to even get it to work. So it, I guess we decided that, you know, we're gonna be grad students for many, many years. And it was probably worth <laughs> putting in the time to do something that we liked. You know, and <laughs> right. I, I've been programming for several years at this time, so it was just fun. I liked to, the challenge of thinking of ways to solve things, and coding keeps the brain fresh. I hope so. That was just sort of the, the preferred route, I think. 
Why, where can I get a grad student okay. that does this for me? I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> you got to get some of those Norwegians those back Norwegians, in the country. Yeah, uh, yeah. Apparently. Okay, that's going to be on my next call for students then. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, and GMT did not always stand for generic mapping tools, right? Yeah, that's the dirty secret. It started uh, <laughs> out as uh, gravity magnetics topography because also the data set that we needed to work with. These were, you know, a long track ship data mostly that had these three. And uh, I can't quite remember exactly when I decided it was time to come up with a new name, but it was sort of towards the couple of years after we started. So still at Lamont. And we wanted to broaden and appeal because other people were using it to plot you know, seismicity and heat flow and other things. So one day it occurred to me that we could just call it generic mapping tools without changing the, the, the logo. <laughs> <laughs> Got to keep the integrity of the Yeah, logo. we don't want to change the logo, you know. It's exactly. <laughs> took a lot of effort. <laughs> well, and the GMT logo is made in GMT, right? It is, right? yes. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> it has changed over the years, but, you know, it's pretty much various uh, different fonts for GMT and some map in the background. Hmm. So I guess when, when you started making this tool, it was initially just you or you and a, a small cohort there at Lamont? Initially, it was just me and Walter Smith, who was uh, my fellow student in the same group at Lamont, both working with Tony Watts. And we both sort of wrote the core part of it that started at Lamont. It was like 10 programs, I think, we had for version 1. And, and Walter continued it for some time after that, too. And so the 10 programs would be things like PSXY for XY plots and some grid math and oh it wasn't any grid math yeah it was or? PSXY and GRD contour and surface and block mean and something like that it was pretty limited <laughs> functionality initially that's where we started with it okay so I mean Lamont there's a lot of meteorologists there did they grab onto this back then or did that come later um, that's a good question. I don't recall exactly if anyone from the meteorology group used it. Just can't remember. But I know seismologists did and uh, ocean scientists did to make maps. They might have done it for mapping. I just can't actually put my finger on any one particular. Uh, the atmosphere is such a small part of the Earth anyway. It doesn't matter, right? When we're I know. Yeah, it's just, just <laughs> blows away, blows over very quickly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's it's mostly negligible. Exactly. So. Uh, <laughs> well, so when when you're working on this, there wasn't a a service like GitHub to make the code easy to grab and uh, all these nice automated build tools and things. So how did the code start to spread and how did other people start to use it? <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, we had something called tapes back then. You might have seen them on mo old movies. Uh, so we've made uh, the initial spread was basically graduate students who graduated at Lamont and moved away and wanted to continue to use it. So they made a copy uh, on tape usually or nine or one of these cartridges. The Sun had these weird cartridges for a while. Um, don't exist anymore. And it sort of spread by word of mouth or by people bringing tapes around. And they even brought it out here to Hawaii back in 88, I think, is the first. And, and so when did you start, uh, you know, say this is version 1.0? I think it was 87 or 88 where we had 1.0 at Lamont, and then it slowly spread out. And it wasn't really released to the public until 1991. We had a release in EOS. That was version 2.1.4 or something. But until then, it was just word of mouth and email. So how did you distribute it, when it once it went out in EOS back then, though? Did they have uh, to? FT that was FTP times. I think oh, we just yeah, published okay. the FTP server, and people did FTP. That was the only way. Gotcha. OK. I used to have to use those radar tapes all the time, so I understand the pain of transferring stuff <laughs> on tape. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So you said that this was written in C, yep. and so that takes some compiling, mm -hmm. and it's processor, you know, architecture-dependent compiling. So were you compiling for different architectures and giving that to people, or is this something of here's the source code and here's a make file and you need to compile it yourself, and this is a, a rite of passage? 
<laughs> yeah, so uh, for version one, uh, we learned about make pretty quickly early on. We didn't know about autoconf and those things for several years. So it was sort of, you. this will run for Sun workstations. If you're running on an HP or something, you might have to change from compiler flags. It was pretty basic. But there was a make file that made everything. So at least it was automated in that sense. And I think we had uh, version control SCCS back then. We learned it was useful to have version control <laughs> early on. <laughs> and that was the first one we tried. I wonder if that's why GMTs persisted so long, that early version control. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was going to say that uh, it was good that I had SCC or version control because one day in Hawaii I was editing and I was going to delete some backup files which were called something percent. And I did an RM minus F space star space percent. So that space oh. snuck in between the star and the percent oh. might return. And oh, no. you know, <laughs> half the directory was gone before I realized <laughs> what happened. So. <laughs> so having version control is really, really important. <laughs> oh, I think I had nightmares about RM star. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, yes. Imagine if that was the source files for our thesis. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> I don't have enough beer to imagine that right now, okay? <laughs> 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 well, so I'm not familiar with SCCS as a version control system. Would this let multiple people, you know, check out a copy and then make some kind of branch and request to have it pulled back in? Or was this a, you, you make a change, you get it exactly how you want it, and then it's sort of a tag I, in the repository? Yeah, it wasn't very network aware. I mean, we used it. It was only a few of us who used it uh, on the developer team, I think. It was just me and Walter and maybe one more person at the time who checked things out. It was pretty basic and it had a lot of issues. I remember with directories or adding, adding new directories was complicated. But we used it until 1999 or 2000. Oh, after 2000, it had uh, Y2K issues too. <laughs> remember the Y2K scare? <laughs> we were there in oh, the yeah. trenches. <laughs> and so a after that what did you move to for version control? Uh, then we moved to cvs concurrent version system okay and uh and then we moved to a uh, subversion in 2011 and uh now we're going to move to github uh, any day now <laughs> The one thing that hasn't changed from version control systems, it sounds like, is that they've always been written by programmers for aliens. <laughs> the interface is still, e even to GitHub, the interface is still pretty, pretty sketchy. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yes. No, I, I hate the idea of learning the f a fourth version control system, but we have to move forward. And uh, hopefully you can tell me enough how to check things out and check things in and that I can be functional. <laughs> I was going to say, that's what you thats what you have a postdoc for, right? <laughs> yep, yes. Yeah, you can go to my house and check out the latest version from me, and I need to work on it on Saturday. Exactly. <laughs> it's very practical. <laughs> but, I mean, this is, this is where you come in, right? Leo is moving GMT forward, and this is the extent of my knowledge, is that you're, you're doing a Python wrapper for this? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, okay. Uh, a couple of years ago, or several years ago, uh, GMT started intro introduced a, uh, an API, which means that other programs can call GMT functions. Okay. And so my job is to make those functions callable from Python, so that you can be working in Python, and then when uh, you can load your data in Python, and when you want to make a plot, instead of going with the Python libraries, you can just plug that into uh, plug that into GMT, and then you get a GMT plot back. Right, and so when you say that, or when Chan says that you're writing uh, a wrapper, you're using the original C of GMT under the hood. Yeah, yeah. So the I'm not rewriting any part of GMT. That would be more than I could do in a couple of years or a couple of decades, maybe. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, the, the core GMT is still in C. And the good thing about Python is that it's also written in C. So it's very easy 
to make Python functions call C functions. All right, so that's uh, basically what I'm doing is uh, building this bridge and dealing with the conversions between uh, NumPy uh, or Python style variables like NumPy arrays and pandas data frames and making the conversion to something that GMT can digest and then passing those things in and making it feel more like using Python than using a, a command line. So is this to help move GMT forward or is this something that Python lacked that GMT did well? This is a, I don't use either one of these things. I'm just <laughs> trying to understand like what, uh, you know, why, why would we you want to do that? I would say it's a bit of both. Yeah. Um, okay. Because ever since I started, um, some parts of, of this uh, interface layer weren't uh, being used. So we, we ended up finding uh, several issues with the, the GMT API that we Paul managed to fix so that I could get things working on the <laughs> Python side. Uh, and also Python has a few uh, actually has two libraries, maybe, th yeah, mostly two libraries for doing geographic maps. Uh, one of them, we met at the SciPy last year, we met the maintainer and he was uh, apparently dying to retire the project because <laughs> he didn't want to maintain it anymore, <laughs> uh, which is the base map <laughs> toolkit. And there's also <laughs> Cartopy. Um, which also, they're, they're both reliant on Matplotlib, so they get all the advantages of Matplotlib, but they also get uh, all of the weaknesses that come with it. <laughs> and plus, all of these libraries, they are at most a decade old, whereas uh, GMT has, has had a lot of time to be perfected. So it's better if we can take advantage of that instead of just trying to redo everything from scratch ourselves. Excellent. Yeah, there are definitely some especially dealing with larger remote sensing data sets where I've tried it with Cartopy or Basemap before that and it would be tens of minutes in the reprojecting and creation of the postscript file and GMT could do it in seconds. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I came across that issue today actually. I was making some apps for our class and I was trying to make them interactive with the Jupyter widgets uh, but I mean if it's taking more than a minute to draw the plot then you can't really get interactivity. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like old school interactivity times. <laughs> yeah. Back in the day, kids. Well, so there was there was a big change between GMT four and GMT five, yeah. and there's also been a big change in the Python ecosystem between Python two point seven, which is going to be officially unsupported very shortly, pushing everybody to Python three. So what combination of all of these things are you supporting right now, or trying to support? Well, from the C side, we're just doing this for GMT6, actually, for the Python, yeah. which hasn't been released yet, GMT6, but it's you know available as trunk in the subversion tree. But we just decided to be sort of future-oriented and, and, and build on top of that. So there's been a bunch of changes under the hood in 6 that will actually be the default mode for how the Python wrapper will use GMT. And yeah. you can talk about, there won't be any Python 2.7. Yeah, <laughs> so uh, ever since we started, we we discussed this early on and we thought, okay, we're building this for the future. So there's no reason to support anything that's not gonna be around for the, the next couple of years. Yeah. Um, so right now, we only support Python 3.5 uh, onward. Uh, it might work on 3.4, but I, I'm not testing and I'm not going to go through, try to make mm -hmm. sure it works. So 3.5 forward, uh, yeah, pretty much all that we're supporting. Yeah, that seems to be a perfectly sane approach from what most projects uh, are, are doing right now mm -hmm. is 3.5 on and then 2.7, the projects that do still support it, it seems like most of them are phasing it out as early as the end of this year. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I can imagine that originally when you would make a GMT map, you would open up uh, an editor and you would put all of these commands sequentially and try to remember to have an O or a K flag. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and <laughs> so, so your PostScript file is kept open or closed properly. And uh, 
how do you take these command line tools that were meant to be implemented back to back in sort of a, a Unix style environment and wrap them in some kind of OO looking thing for Python? Uh, several layers to that. I mean, the, the initial uh, motivation for rewriting GMT4 into an API in 6 was so that we can do these things down the road, where all the uh, commands that you're familiar with, PSXY, PSCoast, Surface, and so on, no longer are main programs, but they're functions. And we rewrote them so that the input and output would be abstract, would be generic. So it might be an output file, but it may also be a pointer to some memory. So once that was implemented, it made it much easier for, for Leo or us to build something on top of that that want to get the stuff back into another environment. It doesn't want to create a file. It just want to send the memory back. So that was the sort of first step to make this possible. And then, of course, we had to run in and, and try things. And we found that it wasn't actually implemented correctly in many places because we hadn't had no way of testing it until we started to build these things on top. So <laughs> it's been a long time coming. We were joking at work this week that uh, there should be an O'Reilly book called Elegant API Design that is bound on the right-hand side. <laughs> you, you never get it right. The first That's time. right, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's very dangerous when you decide this is the API, and then as soon as you release it, you realize, well, that was really stupid choice on this function. We have to add another argument, and you're breaking it. And then, you know, it's not supposed to do that because it's supposed to be the way it was designed. And you just can't do that right. in, in this business. You've got to come up with the right solution in the end and you know, break some egg, I guess, in that process. The good thing is that all of this uh, happens in the background. So if you're running the, the GMT command line programs, all of this API stuff is happening uh, hidden from you. So we can make changes to some of that stuff, and mm -hmm. it, it won't impact most of the users. That's true. Yeah, the users actually know very little or see very little change as yeah. you go forward. But you mentioned the minus O and K and the postscript juggling and all that stuff. And the one nice thing is that in GMT6, we have a new thing called modern mode that eliminates the need to do all those kinds of things. So instead of having to do minus O and K and remember to append or create a new file, it's all taken care of under the hood. That will simplify things a lot. And that's how the Python thing will, that will be the default and only mode, I think. Yeah, that's the, the only mode in Python. and. That really helps a lot because now we don't have to deal. Uh, John mentioned that you that you're writing command line programs on a, on scripts and you're redirecting PostScript and saving that to a file. So now with the GMT six modern mode, that all happens in the background, managed by GMT. So on the Python side, I don't have to deal with any of the PostScript. So GMT builds everything in the in the background, and then I can. Uh, use some of the standard tools to get, for example, a PNG back and show that to the user on the Jupyter Notebook. Or um, we're even experimenting with using some JavaScript libraries. Like there's this NASA Whirlwind Web that is like a Google Earth uh, thing that runs in the browser. Hmm. So now we can have GMT generate a GeoTIFF file, which we can embed in this JavaScript globe. So you can be in the notebook and you get back a GMT plot embedded in an interactive globe. And all of that oh, happens wow. kind of seamlessly mm -hmm. in the background thanks to this modern mode. Yeah, that's pretty good. Uh -huh. Slickest. It, that sounds. I was going to say, slickest cat shit we said in the old days. <laughs> <laughs> Is that still allowed to say on the podcast? I don't know. Oh, that's yeah. How I grew up. <laughs> John will bleep it out. <laughs> that's right. Yep. So. It sounds like you're trying to build this to where it works well with the the Jupyter Notebook environment, uh, which is where a lot of people are trying to do things now. But you can still save out, uh, I assume, a, a PDF or some sort of static publication image as well, right? Yeah, you can save anything, any format that GMT supports, you can save. So when you make the figure, the only difference is that in the... Uh, if you're running on the command line through a script, it doesn't make sense for you not to get a file back. But if you're running in Python, especially in these interactive shells, a lot of times you just want to see the plot. You don't really want to save it, or maybe because you're still working on it. Um, so we don't save to the file automatically. But if you want, we provide a save fig function that behaves kind of like the matplotlib one, 
uh, and then you can export it to whatever format GMT supports, like PDF or uh, PostScript or EPS, and even KML for Google Earth. Okay, and so then the one other question that I think is going to be on every GMT user's mind is, how do you deal with the flag B? The flag in, B. In a Python. <laughs> flag right. B. Oh, yes. Yeah. Because flag B has always been a mystery. Yeah, it is. Uh, right now, we are not really dealing with it. We're just, <laughs> we're just assuming that you know what you're doing. But the good thing about having the Python uh, side is that we can, if we have the basic functionality working, we can add abstraction layers on top of that. Uh, so we could add new functions that uh, look like the matplotlib API where you're calling, instead of doing B, you're saying X label this or X ticks that. And what could, that could do is store that information and then build out the B flag for you. Right, that's uh, one possibility, but I think that that will come after we have <laughs> uh, everything working fine uh, the way it is, and then we can sort of simplify it along the way. And also, the uh, GMT after last few versions has gotten better at providing good automatic choices. So most people don't need to worry too much about the minus B, except yeah. perhaps for specific axles, axis labels, which you have to specify. But you know, the tick mark interval and all that stuff, we can automate. In a, to a reasonable degree, I think. Yeah, that's that's been happening a lot with the uh, GMT uh, five and and six. There, there's a lot of automation going on. Uh, so GMT has gotten very good at guessing common usage. So, uh, for example, the region argument, it'll uh, sort of try to guess it from your data grid. You don't have to supply it all the time. Uh, what else for the hill shading, right? right. As well now the. Uh, you don't need to calculate the gradient yourself. Uh, GMT can do that in the background. And same thing with the minus B. Hmm. And, and the reason we can't do that is because of the API again. So if you're doing GRD image and you want to make a color image of some topography, you used to have to run GRD gradient separately to create the shading to be fed into GRD image because these were separate programs. But now we can do a you know, call to GRD gradient function within GRD image automatically to provide the default shading that, you know, again, 95% of people will be quite happy with. Yeah. So it makes it much simpler to use. Right. I guess shifting gears, because, you know, I was doing other stuff during that last five minutes, but. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Um, <laughs> I mean, I understand postdoc work. You know, luckily I didn't have to do one, but a lot of people around me were postdocs and stuff. But I don't understand, Leo, what being a postdoc writing software is like? I mean, what made you branch out to do this? Did you love GMT that much and decided to do this? or? Well, Paul, well, Paul's personality, uh, is that what brought you there? Right. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I've been doing software ever since my undergrad. Um, me and a group of friends, we really liked, we really enjoyed the classes. I had never seen anything like that before I got to university. Um, mm -hmm. So that we were kind of fascinated by that and also very upset at the very bad programs we had to use uh, <laughs> for a lot of stuff, uh, particularly the GravMag modeling program, which uh, a friend of mine suffered through his undergrad trying to make these really complex models. Mm. Uh, so I, I've always been into doing that and uh, my graduate school work was mostly developing inversion methods. So since you're creating a new method, you have to write the software. By definition, there is no software that does it. So I was doing a lot of programming at the time. And I mean, you're in grad school, and my advisor was uh, very relaxed. So she let me do this. <laughs> <laughs> so I've always been into software. And I mean, I, I, I saw this opportunity for working on something that I like uh, in an amazing place. Uh, with a very famous software, and uh, um, I, I didn't know Paul at the time, but I'd seen some of the talks, and he seemed like uh, a very nice guy. Harmless, I think the word. And so that that well, and works out fine. I mean, uh, I, I like what I do, and I, I have 
I mean, I still work on research projects um, on on the off hours. Uh, I'm not very good at multitasking, but <laughs> no one you know, is. I, That's I a try. farce. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know why I asked why you did this. It was clear from the beginning <laughs> that Hawaii was your only your only. <laughs> <laughs> there. So. You have jumped right to that one. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, I'm not fooling one, anyone. One <laughs> Well, and Leo, you're no stranger to developing uh, Python packages either, because I mean, you should definitely plug the package that you worked on during grad school. Yeah. Oh, well. Okay. Now that I got this free promotion, then <laughs> <laughs> that's what we're here. Yeah, for. it was a very similar to Paul's story about developing GMT. So uh, we were there, and the every single student that was working with my advisor, we were all rewriting the same things. Um, at the time, I was already doing Python, so we had to write uh, forward modeling uh, functions for prisms, for gravity and magnetics, and my friend was doing the same thing in C, and this other student was doing the same thing in Fortran, and my advisor had the same thing implemented in, I don't know, Fortran 77 or something, uh, and MATLAB, and so we were doing all this repeated work. Um, so I also started <laughs> just putting everything together in a library. Um, I, I was learning version control and I was already putting everything online just because it was easier and everything was open because uh, if it's open, it's usually free to host and I didn't have any money to pay for hosting. So, <laughs> <laughs> so every, I was right. just open by default because it's free. Um, and yeah, that ended up, uh, we the the name I was using for that was uh, is fatiando terra, which means slicing the earth, and that was the sort of joke name we gave to all the software projects we were dreaming about in undergrad and uh, <laughs> yeah, try thinking of maybe replacing everything. <laughs> so we started out with the goal of let's implement every single modeling function in all of geophysics, <laughs> which is. <laughs> Uh, easy, easy. You know, easy, yeah. yeah a couple I mean, of weekends. Yeah. When exactly. you get two or three people together, one or two years, you got it. No. Yeah. And yeah, it turns out it's a lot harder than that. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so now uh, almost almost all the students who are getting into the research group back in Rio, they are basing all their theses on top of that. and. So they're usually not implementing the forward modeling and all that anymore. They're just focusing on the inversion, which mm. is what they're, they, they're supposed to be doing. <laughs> um, haven't had a lot of um, luck in getting them to contribute a whole lot to the software back, but uh, it's, it's always hard um, building something that, that making sure people will contribute back. And I, I'm sure John can can say a lot more about that than I can. We don't have that kind of time. <laughs> <laughs> I see. Oops. Yeah, it's getting late over there. <laughs> Just because I've heard John for hours talk about that. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, and Leo has actually contributed to, uh, to MetPy a couple times as well. Yeah, I got the yeah, sticker. You're a very versatile to person <laughs> in the Python ecosystem. <laughs> well, so talking about, um, you know, <laughs> making it open software because you don't have the money to host. I mean, how, how has GMT been funded then? Oh, yeah, it's an interesting story. So when we first released it uh, in the EOS in 1991, uh, we actually got tons of users. So, you know, th that becomes more work in a sense. You get all this feedback and bug, bug uh, reports and things. So I uh, decided to try to write a proposal to NSF to see if they would pay for it. And I think it was like pittance, was like 30,000 or something like that. It was <laughs> half a month's salary. It was really painfully low. And, you know, of course we got it because all the users were re reviewing these proposals and they all <laughs> gave it thumbs up. So, so it's a little <laughs> bit like pushing drugs, right? I mean, you have the, the users <laughs> writing the reviews, and of course, they want more drugs. So over the years, we've written probably, I don't know, six or seven GMT proposals. And I don't think we've gotten anything less than a very good, mostly excellence every time. Fun, this thing. Even one time, uh, we back in the day when you actually had to print proposals and mail them off, 
we screwed up and uh, only sent the odd number of pages and forgot the even pages to one of the reviewers. <laughs> and they still said, fund it anyway. <laughs> so that's, that's a ringing endorsement. <laughs> but basically, we've been continuously funded since 1993. So that's, uh, what, 25 years? It's pretty long. Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah, that that's, that's impressive. And so do you have an idea of how many people use GMT now? Um, no, not really. We sort of stopped counting uh, a few years ago when it became hard to do because we have no way to check, you know, how many is downloading GMT from Ubuntu or something. It's just so uh. we, we could just do it from our website and subversion and things, but it's several tens of thousands that we could sort of could count, and by extrapolation maybe you know a few more ten thousands. There's a lot of folks now, and it seems to be growing. Every time we try to measure downloads, it just sort of keeps going up. I, I, oh, that's good, but like you said, it is a, a problem when writing software is is a lot of fun until users break it <laughs> in unexpected <laughs> exactly. ways. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, we've been trying to explain to NSF that it's good that we have many users uh, outside the U.S. because they they contribute bug fixes and patches and ideas, even though. You know, NSF is there to support uh, U.S. scientists. There's actually a lot of benefit for having you know thousands of people around the planet helping for free. <laughs> yeah. Most <laughs> importantly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, so I, I've seen a lot of cool things that have been done with GMT, and you gave a talk on the 20th anniversary right. of GMT, where you had some really impressive uh, movies in there, but. What are some of the strangest GMT use cases that you've seen or heard Ooh. of? Uh, there was once a guy who did uh, brain tomography. It's like a brain map. Uh, if I remember it right, uh, how a monkey sees or something like that. It was really weird. He had this very strange projection he used with GMT and a lot of scripting to produce. And I remember I, I got a copy of the paper. It was like 15, 20 years ago now. But that was pretty unusual. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but people use it in all kinds of crazy ways. I mean, astronomy, social science, fisheries, you know, you name it. And it's yeah, even history, right? The yeah, even history. Alexander the Great. The Alexander the Great, map. yeah. So go on the Wikipedia and look for Alexander the Great's uh, battles. You will see a GMT map. <laughs> you know, so who knows? Oh, nice. <laughs> wow. So <laughs> if, if folks wanted to try out GMT, how can they get started? They can go to our website. You can Google generic mapping tools and you'll find our website and you can install uh, the installer for Mac or Windows or you can build from Linux from source or you can get it from Ubuntu or one of the other Fedora that have these installations. So it's pretty easy to install, I would say. Uh, okay, and so once they get it installed, is there a, a getting started tutorial or examples or something that folks can look at? Uh, yes, we have a kind of semi-lame tutorial which takes you through some really basic stuff. This is clearly an area where we can improve, uh, but it's you know we, we've threatened people, we have tried to offer them inducements. It's really hard to have people write documentation and tutorial cases. Yeah, and uh, it's like the last thing you do. <laughs> it seems like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's always something else ahead of that, you know, like fixing the bug or eating lunch or something. It just doesn't happen. <laughs> well, and there's got to be so much, because I learned GMT in a class that was taught by Sridhar Nandikrishnan and okay. uh, Chuck Amon. Oh, yeah. And they had some introductory material that we used, and I'm sure all around the world, professors have developed introductory material. Yep. Uh, so it'd be great if you could get your hands on some of that. Yeah, that's a good yeah. idea, actually, to try to harvest some of those things and come up with a, you know, a unified set of tutorials or class lectures or something yep. like that. I mean, I teach a GMT yeah. class here, done for decades now. And some of those, that the talk part, the lecture part of that is on iTunes, I guess. I put them up there. Uh, but it would be good to have something more solid on that. Let's say a, a three-day class or a one-day class or a eight-week class or something like that. Now we just need another postdoc to do it. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so Shannon, I mean, you, yeah, you know, you mentioned yeah, yeah. Uh, they, they want to find a reason to come to Hawaii. That's right. Yeah, uh, get a sabbatical. 
You know, there you go. <laughs> I'm gonna write that down. I'm up for sabbatical, or I can be up next year. So okay, and they'll yeah, say, yeah. oh, and I'll say they need a neophyte to you know look at this with fresh eyes. So exactly, yeah, we don't want some coder. We want some, a user here who can you know, exactly. stumble into the various pitfalls we have made. Yeah. Like, how do you open this command line thingy? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Exactly. <laughs> okay, great. I got my sabbatical. I am so excited. <laughs> we will, I will see you guys That's in a year. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you guys are definitely on the forefront of technology. Um, so we like to ask our guests that we have on here. So what technology in general are you most excited about right now? I mean, you guys are using it every day, so. Boy. Um. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> maybe maybe we're not quite at the forefront. I guess we should have a Apparently not. For this. <laughs> I guess Skype doesn't count anymore. <laughs> Clearly. Definitely not Zen Well, all, all the technologies today seem to start with phrases like, it's like Uber, but for... <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> uh, okay, let's, uh, let's move on. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, uh, all these mapping and interactive mapping libraries for, for JavaScript that you can sort of uh, make it work on the web um, and all the 3D stuff, so that's... Uh, there's been a lot of work going on in that, and it's still not not super accessible or, or easy to use, mm. especially if you want to get lots of data in it. Um, but there's a lot happening in that area, and that has the potential for um, you know like taking these static maps that we make and bringing them some so that the user can really explore the data set and zoom and pan and all the stuff that we're used to doing in Google Maps, but you can't really do on a PDF. Right. Ah, okay. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah, and so uh, sort of a companion question to that then is what is one thing that you couldn't do your day-to-day -day job without? You would be lost if it went away. Um, well, a couple of things, I guess. First, my wife. Without her, I couldn't <laughs> spend all this time because she's running everything else. So that's really helpful. That you know makes makes it possible to spend way too much time uh, doing this kind of stuff. Uh, so that's critical. Uh, the atmosphere out here in Hawaii and uh, that I've been able to do this for so long that's really helped. That uh, it's pretty laid back. Uh, I've been able to sort of do a dual career of you know being a actually being a scientist on the side and and then doing this GMT thing as a hobby, although. It's a paid hobby, and it's half my time spent on it. So it's been kind of lucky, I think. Yeah, that, that, that was a good answer, just in case she's listening. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She might. I took my answer. Yeah, Paul, Paul set a new, a new benchmark for that answer from now on. Yeah. Uh, and... Um, I mean, technology-wise, uh, I would say uh, version control. Mm. Um, every single thing I do is either in Dropbox or on GitHub. Um, so just the peace of mind of thinking that if the mm -hmm. entire building catches fire and my house catches fire at the same time and I get <laughs> mugged on the way back home, right. uh, everything <laughs> is still fine. I still have everything. Yeah, That's definitely uh. true. Oh, yeah, those RM yeah. star uh, nightmares aren't the same as they used right, to be. Right, right. Now yeah. it's true. Yeah, duplications <laughs> everywhere. I'm almost everything the I do is now in Dropbox, really. <laughs> yeah, that's nice. I remember like Friday was the backup day, right? So it's like as long as you <laughs> lost all your stuff on Monday, it was okay. But if you lost it on Thursday, it was bad. <laughs> oh, I never found a good backup system that actually worked because it always required you to yeah. do something. Yeah, and you were the least reliable person to do that, so it was always <laughs> dangerous. You know, you couldn't pay someone else to do it because you didn't have the money. So it was up to you, and that meant it didn't happen. Yes, and Shannon will tell you, or longtime listeners of the show, that 
I am so terrified of losing data that I I hoard backup drives right. and rotate them monthly. And well, that's good. Uh, but that's becoming less necessary with things like uh, Crash Plan or Backblaze or all these these cloud backups. Yeah. It's really nice. If if my laptop got run over, I think probably in a day or two I could be back to where I am now. Yeah, that's nice. Peace of mind. Yeah. Yeah. So, what about any? Any workflows or any other fun things that that you do that you thought would be fun to share with our listeners? Um, the thing that I'm mostly working on now that I find interesting is movie making, animations. So GMT6 will have a new module called Movie that makes it much, much easier to make a GMT animation sequence. So like the one you saw on that old 2011 podcasts with the flying over the mid-ocean ridges that was a lot of uh, elbow grease and ox scripts and crazy things to make that run and uh, I can now recreate that with just a few lines of GMT code and call GMT movie which will automate all the things that I had to script before like you know looping over things rasterizing make sure it's the same size build the PNGs then turn them into uh, mp4 all that stuff is done automatically so that's pretty exciting because I think science really benefits from animations to show things that vary in time, and it, yet it's so difficult for most people to do it. So it doesn't happen very often. It's like a big project, and yep. it should be something simple that you can add to your paper or your talk or something. So that's sort of I'm trying to move that a little bit forward, I guess. And even for visualizing cross-sections, um, so all, all these tomography models, and you right. see just one cross-section, and you have no idea what's going on right. anywhere around that. Uh, so it's, yeah, animating that to like go through the entire volume, that, that's right. very helpful. Yeah, and that should be easy. I yeah. mean, that's sort of low-hanging uh, animation fruits, you know, just to yeah. automate that part. Yeah. Well, we, we know that authors always choose the you know, the most representative <laughs> non-jerry-picked cross-section. <laughs> exactly, yeah. The typical uh, representative. <laughs> yeah, representative. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, so is there anything else that y'all would like to uh, add? Hmm. Well, um, if you're listening and you know how to use GMT and you have examples and... You don't need to be an expert, just know how to do some basic things like get your data, make a map, and you're interested in contributing, you should definitely go to the GMT website, you can get in touch with us. Mm -hmm. uh, there's always room for helping with uh, like giving feedback on the documentation and how we can improve it, uh, especially if it's constructive feedback, like a specific thing that we can change instead of just, the documentation sucks. Uh, right. <laughs> they already know that. I'm going to work yeah. on that. On my <laughs> yeah, right. Yes, right. That's, that's all carved out now. <laughs> that, exactly. That will go away. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, any, any help that you can give so that we know what to tell Shannon to do next year. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I'm going to amplify that by saying that, you know, a lot of the features in GMT came from suggestions by other people. Not necessarily patches, but you'll get questions like, I want to do this, how can I do, how do I do that in GMT? And I will say, hmm, that's a good idea, we should do that. And then we <laughs> implement it very quickly. So, so that's been a good feedback cycle between other people's ideas and us implementing them and sort of taking advantage of this new cool thing you can do. So it's, yeah. it's, it's a good community to have a lot of feedback, uh, that you get a lot of feedback from. Yeah, an advantage of open source software is that uh, we're just normal people building this stuff. And we're not really officially getting paid for any of this. So, well, we are getting paid, but getting some. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but the user is not paying us directly. That's right. The users don't pay. Yeah. So you, it's you can interact with us. You can let us know what's uh, what's on your mind and uh, what's your specific specific use case. Uh, yeah, we can act on it pre pretty quickly, right? There, we don't need approval from a manager. We, right. Right. Yeah, and so, you know, you're just, like you said, normal guys that put your coding wrist braces on, you know, one finger at a time every morning, <laughs> just like everybody else. Exactly. <laughs> yes. We have those wrist braces, too. <laughs> I do. <laughs> the speed that you all do stuff, it's it's really amazing, and the, the Python bindings have been coming along really nicely and something that uh, I'm excited to hopefully get a chance to, to play with myself. 
Yeah. So are those available and ready for people to kick the tires on those? Yeah, I mean, it's all been uh, available from the beginning. And if you go to gmtpython.xyz, that will take you to the documentation. There is a link there for um, a, a tentative tutorial with uh, what we already have implemented. We also have a contributing guide that I stole from MedPy. Uh, sorry, uh, borrowed from <laughs> MedPy. <coughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, there's a link to a chat room and the source code on GitHub. We tag issues with um, anything that I need help with or places that would be good for someone to start if they're not familiar with the project yet. There's a tag for that. Uh, they can search around and see if you what, what you can help with. Mm -hmm. um, there isn't a whole lot implemented in the sense of the GMT module. So most of the work has been on this lower level communication between GMT and Python. But that's moving along pretty nicely and hopefully by maybe the middle of the year we're gonna start uh, heavily wrapping the individual GMT modules and then we can do some pretty cool stuff with that. I should make a, a tiny plug for those of your listeners who are doing MATLAB. So there's a GMT MATLAB API also, there's a toolbox. So if you like working in MATLAB, but you want GMT, you can do the same thing, although a little bit differently than the way Leo's gonna implement it. But you can still run GMT from, Python, from MATLAB and make plots and receive grids back and so on. And there's a Julia wrapper there's as well. There's a Julia wrapper too. And we even heard some people were got in contact with us, they wanted to try to make a JavaScript yeah, uh, wrapper right. as well. So. Yes. And Fortran. Yeah. <laughs> Don't want to forget that. Wow. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> now you're talking my language. Right. <laughs> well, so if folks have things that they would like to get back to you or uh, give you feedback or just find out or be able to contact you in general, mm -hmm. uh, how would you like to be found on the internet? Oh, they can certainly find us on the GMT webpage and uh, post questions. There's a general user forum. Uh, if you have bug fixes or features, we have an issue forum, but just regular questions can go into the forum. Uh, but you know, my email address is all over. You can find me very easily and send it directly. I get lots of email, <laughs> so it's not a problem. <laughs> yeah, just, just Google our names. Yes. Uh, all right, and Leo, you're on Twitter as well, right? Yeah, yes I am. Yeah, I'm at Leo Yeda, right. which is probably better to look at it in the show notes instead of <laughs> <laughs> trying to spell that out. <laughs> what's, what's Twitter? I don't understand. Hey, that's my line, Paul. <laughs> I'm sorry. Twitter is like Uber, but for politics. Oh, okay. Ah. Yes. I heard about that. <laughs> that's a good one. That was beautiful. I like it. <laughs> so true. Uh, well, I, I must say that I was skeptical about this show since I don't know anything about what you guys do, but it was a pleasure to have you on. It's always fun to put a voice to, uh, the Slack chat room for me, Leo. So that was, that was great too. And I, I certainly enjoyed it. I hope you guys did too. Oh yeah. The blast. It was great fun. Yeah. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> Wonderful. All right. Thanks for joining us guys. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Okay, Shannon. Well, while you're packing your bags for your Hawaii GMT <laughs> documentation postdoc. Uh, <laughs> it's called sabbatical, John. <laughs> it's where we work hard in places like Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> yeah, so that was a lot of fun. I actually learned a lot about the history of GMT uh, that I didn't know, and I'm pretty excited to start kicking the tires on these Python bindings. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I could, I could not laugh. <laughs> I, I am going to try to download it and mess around with it, so that's that's a thing. <laughs> you definitely should. You could make uh, better Ziderfeld plots for sure. God knows that needs to happen, so yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, without too much further ado, we should move on to everybody's favorite segment of the show. <laughs> Fun Paper Friday. Yay! So I figured that this would be a long show because I know how much you love GMT and software talk. So I tried to pick a one pager for us to talk about. 
And it turns out it's less fun and more weird. But I found this in The Lancet, because you know we love medical journals, as I was digging through the Ig Nobel archives. And it's weird. It's a weird one. And who names a journal The Lancet? Oh, that one's <laughs> just... huge. Its impact factor is like 47 or something. Come on, John. <laughs> I, I don't doubt it. It's just cruel, though. <laughs> yeah, I know. Exactly. <laughs> as is most medical whatever, but you know. That's true. So uh, this paper is Case Report, A Man Who Pricked His Finger and Smelled Putrid for Five Years by Mills et al. It's terrible. So I had to actually look up the follow-up because it's got it and actually has a has a happy ending, I guess. Um, but yeah, so this 29-year-old guy works with chickens, basically killing and deboning chickens. And what happened was he pricked his finger with a chicken bone while he was working dressing these chickens. And ever since then, he smelled basically disgusting, like he was rotting. Right. And so he goes to the hospital and the finger's pricked, it's inflamed, it's red, there's a picture of it. Uh, And they did a biopsy and they started doing some tests and giving him lots and lots of different antibiotics. And none of the antibiotics seemed to kill the smell that was radiating from now, not only the finger, but his entire arm. Oh, yeah, this is terrible. So they did, they went in and did surgery, like exploratory surgery, and they couldn't find anything. And so they started to look more closely at the bacteria that were on him, right? And even in him, they did stool samples and everything else like that to try to figure out what was causing it. And I mean, this wasn't like regular body odor smell. They actually even say that in this <laughs> in this case study is that, you know, that's caused by these specific bacteria. This was like decay smell. And it was really sad because it said that it could be detected across a large room and when confined to a smaller examination room became almost intolerable. Yeah, and it says it caused the chronic disability of social isolation. Yeah, exactly. So that's really strange. And they couldn't figure out, just like you said, they tried everything. They did all this air chamber work to try to figure out, you know, what was being given off and by what bacteria this was. And I guess they came up with saying, you know, they, the patient must have this immunological blind spot to these spore forming organisms that were that they finally said were responsible for it so they couldn't kill them yeah i mean they tried hyperbaric oxygen chambers they tried everything and the end of the article kind of left us hanging because this happened in 1991 and the article here we're in 1996 And they say, we ask assistance from colleagues who may have encountered a similar case or have suggestions on how to relieve this patient's odor, even if the organism cannot be eradicated. Yeah, this is so strange. So I had to, I, you know, Googled it because this is behind a paywall. The Lancet isn't free. (laughs) Um, And so there's an article, um, funny enough, from 2011 in The Guardian about this. And it said, five years later, our patron no longer smells putrid. Thank you very much. That's what they said. <laughs> right. But they they did try different treatments and nothing nothing worked. So it just went Yeah, away and they said they, they got Yeah, they got enormous amounts of correspondence about it. No one had ever seen it before and no suggestions from the anyone were effective. That is so strange. And so, you know, these these people won the nineteen ninety eight Ig Nobel Prize. Um in medicine for this but i mean it seems like this random thing just fixed itself yeah and what are the odds though of having this this blind spot in your immune system and having a job where you could come into regular contact and happening to prick your finger with a bone that had this particular bacterium i know like you can't tell me that the universe doesn't you know doesn't come together in these magnificent ways because how strange is that yeah yeah so this was <laughs> yep. like you said this was a really odd paper <laughs> exactly it was very unsatisfying i'm glad we found out that it finally went away that's that's for sure but yeah yeah that was a weird paper friday <laughs> Yeah, so when I was talking to my wife about this paper before the show, that was her first question is, well, did does he still smell? 
And you and, said, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's why I'm really glad I found that follow-up in The Guardian, even though it was 10 years later. But Right, because, I mean, now it would be 27 years. <laughs> yes, mm-hmm, exactly. <laughs> you know, at, at which point that this person is now in their mid-50s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so strange. So strange. Yeah. So... If you have ideas on what might have been able to be done to eradicate (laughs) this putrid smell earlier, or have your own particularly interesting incident with a chicken bone, we would love to hear it. Shannon, how could they get a hold of us? You can email us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're on Twitter. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. Together, we're at don'tpanicgeo. And we're in the swung Slack chat room, the software underground on the Don't Panic channel. And you can also help support us on Patreon. Thanks to those who have supported us already. Patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.